welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Plastic Planet podcast with myself, Dr. Rafilwe. Today we have a very interesting guest. Um, she is uh, a very incredible young lady. She's an environmentalist, conservationist, scientist, storyteller, listen, everything in one. And um, I'm very much excited to to be you know, with this, with her and, and hear her thoughts. She's also an award-winning social media and science, um, oh, like a recipient, right, Jamelia? Yes, I've um, won a few awards for my scientific presentations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is very, like, you know, just humble. I think she's just being humble. Uh, she's a... Uh, She's done quite a lot in different, uh, you know, in different fields, if you will, because I, I think when I was looking at uh, her LinkedIn and uh, trying to do some research about her, I did see that, you know, it's it's she's a storyteller. She's an artist. You know, she has a, an artistic flair to her, but she's, you know, a, a scientist in her own right. She's just completed you know, has masters as well. And she's an, you know, educator as well, an environmental educator. How, who is Jamilia? Like, who is this person that's not, that's breaking all the, you know, the conforms that we do, we, we know about? Who is Jamilia Jana? Um, thank you so much, Rafila. Firstly, for like the most beautiful intro. Um, and I do get shy sometimes about some of the things that I do. Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, but wow. yeah. <laughs> so who is Jamila? So I, I would say like Jamila in a nutshell has always been like a daydreamer. Um, she dreams about where she could be, um, what her reality could look like. And then from there, um, I think it kind of sparks um, action in a sense. So I was born in the Eastern Cape, but I grew up in Durban. Um, I grew up in Phoenix, actually, um, and spent my entire childhood and entire schooling years in Phoenix. Um, which was which was a very good neighborhood in a sense. I mean, there were a few bad things that happened, a few scary things that happened as well. Um, but I mean, we had a community, um, and but it felt very bubbled, and it felt like yeah, if you if you're in Phoenix, you might get married in Phoenix, you might not venture out into the world, but I've always daydreamed of like what the rest of the world looked like outside of Phoenix. Um, and growing up, we had an, a life orientations teacher who always said that no matter what, one thing you have to do is visit other cities outside of the city that you were, you lived and grow, grew up in. Um, and I actually did take that to heart as well, because I think the world has so much to offer. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm a daydreamer. I'm always dreaming about like the possibilities and the things that are possible. Um, but I mean, dreaming is one thing and putting into action is something completely different as well. Yeah. So. Fantastic. I I think just to put it into perspective, Durban and Cape Town are both in South Africa. So, um, but they, they're very different, right? They're just very, like, far apart and very different. Um, and when you say, okay, I grew up in, I was born in the Eastern Cape, 
and um, you know, just but just grew up in Phoenix, and uh, mm. you know, just also now, you know, in your later or later years, because you're still very young, in your later years, uh, you are now, you know, uh, in Cape Town. So, just you know, your understanding and your assimilation of what South Africa is and what South Africa has to offer. Growing up as a child, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, just Phoenix was very bubbled and it was something that, uh, you know, you never really did see outside your bubble. But then what did it look like? What did your household look like? Great. Um, it wasn't just my parents. I had my siblings, my younger brother and my sister who were staying with us. So we would go to school. My sister would go to a different school from us and then we'd come back home um prepare ourselves some lunch um after school snack and I the first thing I would do which was so wrong um would put on the cartoons because I wanted to catch up um Um, with the cartoons (laughs) that were playing (laughs) and then after that (laughs) after that um um, we would then have to go to um, Madrasa, which is like an after-school um, uh, um, Islamic studies where we'd learn the Quran and we'd learn like more religious studies. And then after that, like I think for like an hour and a half and then we'd come back home and then I'd try and complete my homework after that. After all the cartoons were finished at 5 p.m., latest half past five, I would yeah. then try and do my homework. But I mean, we... we Besides like just like coming home and watching TV and things like that, a lot of our weekends were spent with us being outside, particularly my brother and I, because we were much younger than my sister. So we'd play outside, we would dig up little holes and trenches in the in the ground and use bricks as cars and use old perfume bottles as people, even though like our parents had bought us toys. So oh. we did spend a lot of our time outside. I mean, I've got so many bruises and scrapes and um marks on my body from just us being outside and not just being glued um to the tv um and a lot sometimes we'd also have some friends come over or if my parents were happy for us to visit a friend we'd go and visit them um but i mean my we grew up particularly in phoenix and the language that we were speaking was mostly english in school so had it not been for my sister quite honestly i don't think we would have learned Tosa because um it wasn't offered at school we were learning Afrikaans and you know we've asked the school multiple times like why not offer Zulu at least and it's always been like um they don't have the capacity for a Zulu teacher um so so like some days my sister would like dedicate her time into teaching us closer so that you know when we go home back to the farms we understand people and we can communicate with people as well um, but um, aside from just like us playing, I remember actually a moment where I had like my dad bought us bicycles um, and we didn't have training wheels on them. And I remember going to the shop and I was speeding so hard and it was a slope and I, I, I we didn't have I didn't know how to use the brakes at that point. And I speeded into the tuck shop and I hit the mm-hmm. bin. Had the bin not been there, it would have been like a major accident. And I remember the guy saying, I'm going to tell your father what you're doing. Don't come back with a bicycle. <laughs> um, but I mean, you could like there was a sense of community. People knew us. Um, we we were allowed to be ourselves. We were allowed to be kids and people under- like accepted us as kids as well. And we could 
play we could visit the shops as we wanted to so um there was like a lot of freedom growing up I think and um we weren't fully restricted I mean we had some restrictions but it was all safety concerns from my parents um side quite honestly um and I mean we we aren't like the loudest family um but any Saturday or Sunday when we were watching TV, um, the movies on ETV or SABC3, you would hear us like being very loud. Like if it was an action movie, you would know <laughs> that we were watching an action movie. Like our reactions, we, we were very loud about those things. So yeah, growing up was really, really fun. I'm not going to lie. Actually, now that I think about it, um, I haven't really delved that deep into like what my childhood looked like, but it was, it was a really great, um, and, and yeah, it yeah. sounds like it. I think it you can hear it in your voice, right? That you sort of, you know, speak through your smile <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's very, it's very beautiful and, uh, yeah, I just cannot really you know understand or get my head around being in kzn and not knowing how to speak zulu how does that work yeah hey? um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think uh it's it's yeah it's it's uh something that i i i was not born in kzn i was born in, in johannesburg south africa but had to move subsequently to KZN for education and um I found out very quickly that that is it's not going to work that you don't you don't know your Zulu you have to you know be up to speed I, so yeah. speaking of exposure I I think I, I'm interested in, in understanding where did your personal exposure to who Jamelia is starts to get um so when did you start thinking that actually I, I'm a storyteller actually I'm actually a scientist I want to do the sciences so you know just in fact which one came first you know so did you just uh, explore the storytelling and then uh, you know just decided that no actually I'm gonna go ahead and, and, and be a scientist yeah I think that's a very cool question um I would say that I've always been a storyteller just thinking about it arts and craft was like one of my favorite subjects English were was one of my favorite subjects in school um and aside from like playing around and having fun with my siblings a thing that I would do a lot growing up was actually read like I would go to the library and borrow up to like five books because that was the limit and if there was an extra book I wanted I would beg them and I'm like can I please have a sixth book and then they were like we can't give you a sixth book um also you are using the junior kids card um like you need to get an adult card to borrow certain books and I'm like no I want to read this book <laughs> um but I've always like immersed myself in different worlds and I just I've like I loved reading I loved also seeing like animation I used to draw a lot um, a lot of like I would watch like Dragon Ball Z and then I try to like replicate some of the characters and like and then I got interested into in manga um, art and I would write lyrics I would write songs I would paint growing up so I've always been someone who wanted to tell stories um, it changed very differently when my dad first bought a computer. I would like write short stories 
for days. I'm if I could find that um CPU that my dad had, I really do want to like go back and find those stories and just see where what I was writing back then. But I think storytelling was the thing that came to me first. Um, it's something I've enjoyed. I loved writing. Um, and then I loved reading and then I just loved expressing myself, whether it was just through um, poetry, through song lyrics, through painting. I just genuinely loved doing that. Um, and I knew that that was something I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in a space where I could tell stories. Um, and in my head for the longest time, even when I used to like watch, oh, no, lean, man. I forgot her name, not the talk show host, no, lean or Oprah. I've always been like, I want to be the people behind the scenes, like, yes, setting up the show and like having these shows like aired on TV. Like I want to be a person was part of that. I don't want to be sitting in front of the camera. Oh. I'd rather be studio helping create a masterpiece. So I've um I yeah it's I know that it's something that I've always wanted to do. And then over time I realized that I also enjoyed biology. Like life sciences was something I really enjoyed. Uh, but I felt not a complete disconnect. Um, it's just like the only time I kind of felt more in tune with like what's happening in biology or how cool it was, was when I would visit my grandmother in the Eastern Cape and we were like, I would see all these cool different plants and birds. We would go down to the stream, these beautiful streams, this beautiful forest that we would go if we had to go washing or collect water. And I knew that I'm um, just being in tune with nature was like, a, it felt like home in a sense, because I mean, the Phoenix felt, I mean, the Eastern Cape felt more at home than Phoenix. And I knew that like, this is the kind of feeling that I want to take with me till, till I die. I want to be so in tune with nature away from bustling, away from the stresses of school or just like the chaos of like a suburb. So I then started getting some influence on the fact that you can be a scientist. Um, I remember there was a magazine, a U magazine. It was a kid's U magazine. And it had like careers you can go into. And one of them was like marine biology. I'm like, this looks very interesting. So by grade nine, I was like, I want to be a marine biologist, but also I want to be a graphic designer, but also I want to be a journalist. And then one of my English oh. teachers kind of saw that I loved writing. Like she, she even took one of my work and gave it to classes like above me. And like, this is how you write a story. So she kind of motivated me. It's like, you need to go into a space where even if it's like a broadcasting, like a radio broadcasting, go into that, but like use that skill of storytelling because it's clearly something that you enjoy, but it's something that you're good at as well. So I put that application in. I got accepted both for marine biology and graphic design, not for journalism. <laughs> um, but I, I made the decision that I'm going to get into science, even though I was not very familiar with what it looked like. And it was a bit of a shock when I got to university and I learned that, okay, science is stats, maths, physics, yeah. the things I don't want to do, <laughs> the things I'm not good at. And I knew that I was not good at them. So the first year was a very frustrating because I was doing stats. I was over stats in matric. 
I was doing physics. I was not very good at physics. And like we had some maths and the, some of the math thing that we were we were learning was just like it required me to use parts of my brains that I like didn't want to use anymore. Okay. Um, but then I'm like, so how 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 is this marine biology? I thought we were gonna learn about the ocean, but once we got into second and third year, that's when I'm like, okay, I kind of see why we have to know our physics our maths and our stats and yeah. now we're starting to learn more of like the ocean stuff um but I know like it, I did question it a lot and I wondered also how I could bring stories into the space because I I was very certain yes I'm registered for this degree but I'm like how can I still write stories and still pursue a career in marine biology and for the longest time it was like very it was it wasn't something I had an answer for and I was kind of nervous as well it kind of stressed me a little bit because I knew I was going to get a degree but I knew that also it I was I didn't want to just be a scientist I I wanted to be in a in do a career um in something that I truly enjoyed and writing and telling stories was something I've always enjoyed growing up reading books I loved that drawing and telling stories I loved that yeah that's uh well that sounds very intriguing right I'm I'm in two minds I'm thinking you know as a scientist like you correctly said it's it's not a it's not for the faint-hearted it's like a lot of brain right that's particularly mm. those very first, you know, years into it because, uh, yeah, it's very rigorous, right? And then mm. um, with your, with your, you know, just storytelling ability, you know, um, I'm thinking about your award-winning film. I look at this film and it is shot in a, you know, it's, it's, it's in a remote area. I didn't know of Huleka before this, uh, you know, this film, and I'm just so interested in what is the thought process behind the filmmaking, and why is it that you chose the audience that you chose, the MPA that you, you shot at? Just talk to us about the thought process behind your project. So um, with my film, Shulega, um, it initially, the film itself, I was awarded to make a film through NUF, which stands for Nature, Environment, Wildlife and Filmmakers. And it was a short film, 10 minutes. And at initially it was awarded for my honors project, but we never got to um, doing it on my honors project because of some issues behind the scenes. So we were like back to the drawing board. What can we, what can my story be on? And at that point I was the spokesperson for a youth group called Youth for Marine Protected Areas or Youth for MPAs for short. And we were advocating for our oceans being protected through marine protected areas. And like during that time, I was also learning more about um, South Africa's history when it comes to um, conservation and how many communities were actually at the forefront of being injusticed through the Group Areas Act, as well as other acts um, for nature conservation. And I was like, oh, okay, this is a bit difficult. I'm Black. 
Um, a lot of people impacted by conservation in South Africa, impacted negatively by conservation are Black. I cannot be pushing a narrative that's going to harm not just um, the current people who are dependent on the ocean, but possibly the next generation. And it could even be people close to me as well. So then I realized that we're not having these conversations. Actually, a lot of people don't want to have these conversations in South Africa, especially if it's tied to apartheid. So um, I'm like, nah, we need to have these conversations. If we want to protect our oceans, we need to have all team players on deck, hands together, working together, and we can't leave anyone behind, including our coastal communities. And that means doing the hard work of undoing some of the pain and trauma. And we start by doing that, I mean, a film doesn't necessarily heal the trauma, but it gets the conversation starting. So then that's what inspired Tulega. And I particularly chose Tulega, the, um, the community, because we know about Isimangaliso. Everyone loves Isimangaliso. Um, we know about Table Mountain National Park. Everyone loves it. But what about the smaller MPAs? The issues that are faced in the smaller MPAs are the very same issues that are, um, are faced in bigger MPAs and vice versa. The issues in big MPAs are seen in smaller MPAs. And that was the whole point. Even in South Africa's smallest MPA, the issues are very at the same as the ones being faced in Isimangaliso or in um, Titikama or in Dresakwebe or in um, Table Mountain National Park. Um, so I then was very happy with sticking with Tulega and focusing on the Tulega community. Um, I was initially given like some caution because a lot of the coastal communities do have pain surrounding conservation, do have pain surrounding MPAs. And asking such questions and asking them to relive certain things is, and I'm not a licensed therapist or a counselor, someone who can help them um, when they are telling me these things. So I was told like, just be careful, but I was met with such a great community who were willing to help me with the project. And um, such talented people with so much knowledge as well. Um, free dive, like they have free diving certifications. They have um, environmental education certifications. And it's a shame that um, there's an MPA, but it doesn't provide any opportunities for them. And that's what the film does. It's like, yes, we have MPAs, but we have the opportunities for people. Let's work with scientists, policymakers, and communities, especially with communities, so that we can make a bigger difference when it comes to protecting our ocean. As you speak, I almost have to remind myself how young you are um yeah you know and you know you've touched on the previous injustices due to the you know dispensation dispensation of the past or the previous South African dispensation uh that was unjust for you know people of color how important is a young black voice in the space. So we're inheriting all of that. And um, I think it's important that we're at the table very early on. Um, so we already have an understanding of what's going on, what the trajectory looks like, and then how we can, you know, take over when it is time to take over. Um, and youth voices are also very important because I think we're more in tune to certain trends to how things work. 
Um, but also I think it, if we're not at the table, then we become very, we become far removed from some of the important issues that are happening. You think about how in South Africa, we have conversations where people don't want to speak about apartheid and the Im the impact it has um, socially and economically on a lot of um, black, brown and Indian communities. But then if we want to progress, um, we need to acknowledge that impact it's had. But if we don't acknowledge that, a lot of youth don't want to acknowledge that because it's like, oh, we're bringing up these conversations again. Do we need to? But we have to. We, we cannot be repeating history. And I think youth have to be part of the conversations no matter how and you know no matter it feels like these things happened a long time ago before we were born but literally our grandparents and our parents have experienced them and we need to make sure that whatever policy and whatever decisions are being made in future um, will not repeat the history that we have overcome in conservation especially in conservation, because conservation um, policies and how we do conversation in South Africa is directly linked to colonialism. So youth need to be at the center of these conversations and also in shaping policy and also shaping what South Africa looks like in future. Um, and it being very representative of all the coastal communities, whether they're rural, whether they're urban, um, but whatever the decisions are need to be very representative. And I think um, the older generation cannot do that anymore because they have their own lived um, experiences, which are not the same as the youth's lived experiences. And sometimes their line of thinking is informed from a past that is now not a reality. And we need people with more innovative ideas who understand how fast the world is shifting as well to also be part of um, driving change and being able to foresee um, what the changes could look like in future as well. What would you say are key drivers that need to be taken into consideration in order to facilitate positive change? Oh, that's a very tough question, honestly. And I think there's not just one answer to that question. I think what the first step we need to take is try and heal. And that can be done through long-term relationships that are built um, and trust that is built as well. Um, how conservation is done in South Africa is that a lot of times scientists go into communities, collect their data, they leave. Sometimes they'll report back, sometimes they won't. And already that's like exploiting people's knowledge, exploiting their time, exploiting sometimes even the resources with no form of feedback. And then also now we have um, mistrust between scientists and um, policymakers and communities. So to try and build those relationships because, um, and through and facilitating that healing. And you'll find that it's not going to be easy because as soon as you go to the communities, a lot of times they'll want to vent. They've never had the opportunity to do it. Um, they've 
done it within the community between themselves, but never had the opportunity and platform to voice their concern. So you'll find that initially it will be where they are voicing their grievances and they need that safe space to do that. And you need to let people do that as well so that you're able to be like, hey, listen, we're at the, we're on the same side of the coin here. Um, and I hear you and we have heard your concerns. And thank you so much for feeling comfortable to sh uh, um, to share these concerns as well. And hopefully in future, whatever plan that we have, we will not repeat um, what was done in the past. And that reassurance is very important. And then build those relationships and then also ensure that we are being inclusive and very in intentional in how we're including communities in these conversations. So we, we're drafting um, a plan for an MPA and what um, co-management looks like. The communities need to be at, at the start of that conversation till the very end and then still be part of the conversation when management is happening. And then if we're looking, um, re-looking re at um, what the policies and what management looks like, the communities still need to be in those conversations. So communities need to be in the conversation from the start till the very end and any other work that's continuing at that point because their input is also very valuable. So I think that's one way that we can start um, doing things very differently and, um, which can impact conservation positively. And then I think also it's just from now, that's like more of a local community um, perspective. I think also from a government perspective, I think our government needs to realize that, you know, our mineral resources um, are finite um, and, you, you know, like they will deplete at some point. We can... We can mine all the gold and all the oil and all the platinum, um, and it takes billions of years before we can get those resources again. But we have wind, air, water, which are things that we can use and harness, um, which can boost our economy, which can boost like um, social situations in South Africa. And we need to start tapping into it um, and um, being, start being more strategic and not just go after quick money that comes from um, the mineral, mineral resource industry and actually be very smart of our economic gain that we can get from um, the environment itself, especially in South Africa because we're such a rich country in diversity, land and water. We have all the resources, whether it's to cure the next a disease or to like, you know, ecotourism, we have the resources. And I think our government needs to be a bit more intentional as well. And I think we have all these organizations who are also doing a lot of work, but I think even organizations need to be very mindful of the money that they're getting from European or American donors who have deliverables that might not um fit in the Southern African context. And I think being mindful of that and bringing in ideologies and, um, you know, and acting on behalf of American and European organizations that really don't understand South Africa and then having a detrimental impact um, on a local scale and in communities. Like, I think organizations need to be a bit more mindful on that and also be a bit more strict. Um, I think... You know, I know sometimes you need to like 
dance to the music of your donor. But I think also, I think some donors are, are very willing to listen. And I think being able to say, hey, this sounds like some colonial m- mindset that's not going to fit in South Africa. Can we can we discuss and try to revisit this um, so that it's suitable in South Africa? And I think we just need to have those conversations as well. So, but I mean, these are not the only ways to change things, but um, there's so many other ways. But at the top, top of my head, these are like some of the things that I think are fundamental. Plastic pollution. Do you think it's a problem in South Africa? Uh, I think that's number one. Do you think, you know, we have a plastic pollution issue in South Africa? I tell you why. Um, I'm I'm just listening to you talk about how you know the difficulty in navigating, you know, communication about the you know just apparent and very evident changes that are you know just happening in our space right now. Be it climate change, you know, global warming, ocean pollution. Do you think that you know ocean pollution or plastic pollution in general? can be such, you know, a vehicle or one such vehicle that can be used to communicate, you know, or to just forge that uh, relationship between humanity and and the environment? Oh, um, <laughs> I, firstly, I do think we have a plastic issue in South Africa, but also who introduced plastic? Um, when was plastic introduced in South Africa? And prior to that, what were we using? Um, you'll find just not in South Africa, but in Africa in general, like if people were going to a vegetable garden and they needed something, like they would they would make their own baskets, or if they were going fishing, they'd make their own baskets. Now we go we go to supermarkets and we're using plastic bags. So that was introduced. Plastic was introduced when colonization was happening and um, it's convenient. Honestly, it's convenient. It's durable. Um, it lasts long. It's, it's so useful and it's so cheap that I think about how easy it is for a lot of people who are living in urban spaces have the privilege that they can, you know, reduce, um, reuse and recycle. They can afford sustainable options. But then I think about people in rural areas. When it's raining and you're coming from a supermarket, you're taking a taxi and now you need to still walk like another two kilometers to your house in bad conditions and you have a paper bag, that's not gonna work. Um, but also just seeing how expensive al- the alternatives are. Like the Woolies bag, if I'm not mistaken, um, it's like seven rands. There's other bags that pick and pay as well as ShopRite. They sell them, but they can go up to like 28 rands. And that 28 rands could be transport. That could be your kid's um, lunch money. That could be so many things. And then asking people in rural areas now to move from something that's been convenient, quick, easy, cheap to something that requires them to like spend so much money that they could use differently just to survive. Um, it, it's like, it's such a difficult ask. So I think perhaps like something that we could start promoting is promoting um, 
culture and traditions um, that a lot of Black people and a lot of communities have in South Africa. Like uh, from my sister, she taught me how to make bags out of, you know, the sacks, um, your onion sacks mm -hmm. and uh, those potato sacks. Now that's a reusing stuff and repurposing it. Um, a lot of communities know how to make baskets and bags from materials from the environment and start start introducing that as something that is okay because we've lost a lot of our culture because we we are trying to get close to the urban life and the urban life means you know fast quick um you know um very very bad <laughs> very bad habits that are bad to the environment and start promoting all of that stuff but it's not going to be an easy thing per se because um you know when someone is going hungry, we cannot ask them to think about the planet. Um, and even if it's like a simple shift in the plastic consumption, I think we need to tackle some the socioeconomic um, and figure out how we can do that um, and then introduce conservation as an alternative that is able to sustain livelihoods and not conservation being something that means that people are going to suffer some more um, and people are going to live a more difficult life. So whatever the solutions are for the plastic problem in South Africa, I think we need to be so intentional in the audiences that we're discussing them with, um, be intentional in our messaging as well. Um, I know so many people from rural areas who are, you know, against plastic and are trying their best to do that, but they've taught themselves that they've learned it. They don't like what it looks like, but not everyone looks at the world that way. And I think we also really need to keep that in mind as well. As an, an educator and an environmental educator as well, because that is just one of the things that you do. Um, what is the underlying message that you put out there? You know, you are involved in a lot of beach cleans, you involved in, um, you know, environmental education, particularly in um, semi-urban and, and rural spaces. What underlying message do you put out there to ensure that people just understand the gravitas of plastic pollution? Yeah. Um, so I would say, um, like one thing I'd ask, you know, and a lot of like something that I do ask a lot of kids, would you eat plastic? Would you eat a glass, a glass bottle? Um, would you wear um, plastic t-shirts and pants? Um, you know, would like would you want to live in a plastic container um and a lot of times the answer is no and I'm like so why would we expect the same from sea life why would we expect their homes to be made out of plastic or the food that they eat be plastic um or you know the accessory that they have an accessory is like such a bad word but like seeing marine entanglements being like fishing line so I think then it's, unfortunately, as humans, sometimes we have to be at the center of something to understand it. And I think sometimes that's what we need to do. Like if the 
roles were reversed, we would not be happy to be fed plastic. We we know how detrimental that it is it is to us. So it's also detrimental to the animals as well. And so I'd really encourage people to think about it. Like think about in the next five years, I mean, already they have found plastic in the human body and in human feces as well. Now imagine if there's larger content, contents of plastic and it has all these toxins. We're already fighting so many, like cancer is popping up in everybody. Um, it's like, it's becoming so common. Other diseases are becoming so common. We have um, air pollution as well. We can't also have the foods that we're eating being um, tainted any further with materials that we are making and producing. So I would definitely say just being mindful of that. But also um, when we look around in, in our communities and we see piles and piles of plastic and litter and waste and we wonder, um, is this the kind of life that we want for ourselves as well as for our children in the next generation. And if that's not the kind of life that we want, I think even if it's making the change in our own garden or in our own home, that's a big change already. And don't ever underestimate the impact of your effort. Like your effort goes a long way. That is one person not buying plastic for the next years. That's like, God knows how much plastic that is that has been removed from the cycle. And then be comfortable with sharing information to other people. I think being mindful of how we share the information, but we also can be comfortable. Tell your neighbors like how you've learned this new, like how harmful plastic is. And if they're curious, you can go further and tell them like this is how they can change their lives. Um, but word of mouth is so important. And I think let's let's use that because we can reach so many more people by just having conversations. And you never know who you can touch from that conversation that you're having. Do you think that policy or the government has a significant role to play in ensuring that there is, you know, pivotal change or there is, you know, change in, you know, adopting, you know, some of the solutions that you alluded to, you know, throughout the conversation. Do you think the government has the capacity to do that or the willingness, you know, even? Um, yeah, just interested to hear your thoughts around that. I think any government body has the capacity if it's something that they think benefits them. <laughs> um, quite honestly. So I think it's not a matter of um, whether there's capacity or not. I think it's how much it benefits our government. And right now, probably cutting out plastic doesn't benefit them that much. Um, but I think then again, we need to look at the alternatives and how they can be beneficial, not just short term, but long term as well. Um, I think, you know, we as a country, we have so much that we can pride ourselves um, on. Um, and we are leaders in certain things as well. And I think when we do want to, you know, walk the walk we can um i just think we need to just keep pushing 
Um, it can be very tiring, um, but there will be a point where there's someone in government who's going to listen. Um, and we saw this with Mum Edna Mulewa, the late um, Minister of Environment, um, and she was very inspired by how the youth were just like Mum Edna. Um, why? why is the ocean not protected yet? Why is only 0.4%? And she's like, you know, I applaud the fact that you are here today asking me those questions. And sometimes we forget this as elders in the space, but um, you guys for reminding us, this is so fundamental. And I think sometimes we just need to push, push, push until we start seeing um the, the kind of change we want to see. And also just not giving up. And if you feel like we're giving up, like let someone else take the bait and, you know, let them put fresh energy, let them keep pushing. I think the opportunity is definitely there. I think we have the capacity. Um, I think probably we need to start wording our our campaigns and our messages a bit more different. You know, if, if you really want someone to be on your side, you need to like dangle a carrot in front of their face. And if you know that they don't like a carrot, then, you know, dangle a brownie, you know, you'll catch their attention. Okay. But you need to be able to like, you need to know what they like and then start facilitating those conversations from that point. And from yeah from that point onwards i think radicalism is important but i also think tact and strategy is also very important in um having what we want done um even if it's like from a government perspective we can provide the facts um but also you need to be able to talk the language that is spoken in certain spaces so dangling brownies that is funny <laughs> That is, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard of carrots. So maybe, yeah, brownies is where we need to move towards, maybe. Um, so thank you so much, Jamelia. Um, you have been incredible. I think you are a very incredible, inspiring young lady. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't see you giving up anytime soon. I think I look at you and I'm thinking, uh, you know, we need, you know, scientists and journalists and people who are willing to go into these undefined spaces, right? Where there is sort of an overlap and a blurness between are you a scientist, are you a journalist, are you, you know, are you, um, you know, just a storyteller? And, um, you know, how do we come together in one room and, and really just um, have these very difficult conversations for the future of um, our country and uh, the world in general, actually, the globe, because you know, the globe is very much connected. Um, we might speak of the global north and global south and all of that, but uh, it, in the end, what affects, you know, one part of the ocean really just affects the other. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you for coming through. And I, I really wish you all the best. And I would urge everyone to go and watch Shilega. Uh, it will be linked with this podcast. It's a beautiful movie. And um, it's, a, it's a short film, really. It's not even a movie, so very short. And it, you will really just appreciate the nature, you know, just telling the story of South Africa by South Africans um, or the story of Africa by Africans and really from a young mind and from a young perspective. And that is something that we, we really appreciate. And uh, we thank you for being part of the change. Oh, thank you so much, Rafilua, for having me. 
Um, I it's an like yeah. Thank you so much, and I appreciate you thinking of me. And um, I yeah. Um, I hope everyone enjoys the film when they do um, watch it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye.